You know, it really doesn't matter uh, where you grew up or how old you are. Life has a way of deviating from the plans that we made in the beginning. And that's the story of Jay and Catherine Wolf. Jay and Catherine were living their best life in their mid-20s. Jay had become an attorney. He was starting to practice law. Catherine was beginning a modeling career. They were living in that really difficult, dark, terrible place known as Malibu, California. Uh, Catherine was running along the hills at Pepperdine University, and they had a six-month-old child. Life was great. Until the day that Jay came home a little bit early from work and found Catherine spread out, collapsed on the floor. He called 911, and they took her to the hospital where they discovered that she had had a stroke in her brainstem. Sixteen hours of surgery later, they removed half of her cerebellum, which is the portion of your brain that controls motor function. And over the next few years, Catherine would relearn how to eat, how to talk, how to walk, and how to live. Jay and Catherine tell their story in a book called Hope Heals. And it's a, not an easy read, as you might expect with a story like that, but it's a powerful one. And in the middle of that book, Catherine says something that just puts you back in your seat a little bit. She said, pain has been an instructor teaching me deeper truths about myself and God and bringing me closer to Christ in a way I never was before this happened. See, that's the, um, the unstated reality for so many people who have gone through adversity as a person of faith. That, that the things that might in some people drive them away from faith, how could God allow suffering like that to someone like that? are the very things that drew them closer into an intimacy with God that they longed for at a soul level. And and that's the vision that the scriptures give us, that the relationship we want with God often shows up packaged in the middle of an experience that we would never ask for. The vision of the good life is not that our life is free of suffering and pain and difficulty and loss. It's that in the middle of that, we're given an opportunity to draw close to and experience intimacy with God in a a new way. And that's what we're going to talk about as we continue our series today called Relentless. We're working our way through the books of the Minor Prophets this summer. And for some of you who have said, this is a really hard series, don't worry, we're way closer to the end than the beginning. But we're walking our way through this overlooked and understudied section of Scripture because there's gold here. And we're seeing how God has a relentless heart for His people, how He loves us with a relentless love, how He pursues us in a relentless way, and why we can be people who live with a relentless hope. So today we're going to dive into a book of the Bible that is pronounced a couple different ways. There is potato, potato, tomato, tomato, and there is Habakkuk and Habakkuk. I'm a Habakkuk guy. You may be a Habakkuk person. That's fine. There's no judgment in this place. You can go either way. 
Let me give you a little bit of background on our, uh, our book today. We don't really know anything about where Habakkuk comes from. We know nothing about his history. We know nothing about his hometown, nothing about his family, nothing about his story. We, we know zero. But we do know what his name means. The name Habakkuk, since I doubt you've ever known anybody named Habakkuk, means to embrace or to wrestle. And make sure that you remember that, because we're going to come back to that throughout this message today. Habakkuk means to embrace or to wrestle. Habakkuk may have been a priest in the temple before he became a prophet. His book ends with a beautiful song, a psalm, uh, that will be a source of hope for us today. And he wrote his book to the audience of the people of Judah, people who lived in the southern kingdom centered in and around Jerusalem. And today, as we dive into the book of Habakkuk, here's the big idea that we're going to come back to again and again. Our hope grows as we wrestle with and embrace God. Our hope grows as we wrestle with and embrace God. It's not that going through a season of wrestling with God and struggling in your faith destroys your hope. Our hope can actually grow because of that experience, and we see that in the book of Habakkuk. So if you have your Bible today or you have a digital Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up to the book of Habakkuk. It's about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. If you have a physical Bible and open to Psalms, head towards the back. It is nestled between Nahum and Zephaniah. It's a pretty short read. It's two pages, like a lot of these minor prophets. Uh, But it may be my favorite minor prophet. I think that there is some gold in this book. And I encourage you to make sure that you set, set aside some time this week to read it in its entirety. But if you would, why don't you stand as we read this first section of Habakkuk today and honor God's word. Our friend Catherine is going to advance the slides for those of you who don't have a Bible with you this morning. Here's how Habakkuk begins. The pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and the conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would walk with us through this difficult yet hopeful book today. And for my friends in this room who are wrestling with big questions and doubts today, I pray that they would experience your presence and intimacy with you in the same way Catherine did. And I pray that we would walk out of this room more hopeful than we came in. May the words of my mouth, Father, and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my rock and my redeemer. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Now, I'm wearing a shirt this morning to rep our local Phoenix Suns. And uh, the shirt kind of serves two purposes. One, it matches my Phoenix Sun colored shoes. And two, it's a metaphor for where this message is going to begin. Today's message is going to begin in the valley. And I encourage you to hang with me. We're going to end up in a very hopeful place. 
But to do that, we're going to start out in a really honest place that's going to feel a little bit like a valley. And today, as we start this message, we're going to walk through five things that we learn about God and his work from the book of Habakkuk. And if you've got a copy of the notes, you can fill in the blanks as we go. The first lesson that we learn is that this is a God who welcomes honesty. Habakkuk teaches us that we have a God who welcomes honesty. Not a God who rejects honesty or hates honesty. Not a God who tolerates honesty, but a God who welcomes honesty. As we just read at the beginning of Habakkuk, Habakkuk opens this book with an honest presentation to God about his experience, his feelings, and his thoughts on it. Here in Habakkuk 1-2 we read, How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Now he's being totally frank with God. Or do I cry out to you about violence and you do not save? The book of Habakkuk gives us a platform, an invitation to have an honest conversation and relationship with God and to know that if this is in the Bible and it's been there for 2,700 years, 2,600 years, there's a place for us to be honest with God too. I love how the commentators, Kenneth, should say Kenneth, not Kenneth -er, Kenneth Barkley and Wayland Bailey put it. They say, God is the friend of honest doubters who dare to talk to God rather than about him. Isn't that the challenge? Like when you're in any relationship and you've got doubts or questions, it's way easier to talk about someone than it is to talk to them. It's way easier to gossip about someone than it is to have a hard conversation with them. But yet, in our horizontal relationships with each other and our vertical relationship with God, there is a common pattern that in healthy relationships, you talk to people rather than about people. For some of you, that's the message you came and you need to hear today. That in your relationships, you, if you want them to be healthy, you got to stop talking about people and go talk to them. And God is the same way. And God wants us to be honest with him. The reason that this part is in the Bible is God welcomes Habakkuk's honesty. And not just Habakkuk, throughout the Psalms, we see incredibly honest conversations with God because it's only when we take those honest questions to God that we hear from God what we need to know. In Psalm 73, which I encourage you to read this week coming out of uh, the past message, the writer says, when I tried to understand all this, all these questions I had, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary, then I understood their destiny. See, so often the kind of clarity we want comes on the other side of finally getting honest with God about the doubts and questions we have. And yet many of us were, were groomed or we grew up or we have experience in church contexts where we were taught something very different, that you couldn't share honestly with God that you didn't talk about doubts and questions you had, that you didn't get really transparent with God and others about what was going on in your heart. And yet, when we don't get honest about those questions and we don't share, we're actually in an unhealthy place. I love how Tim Keller describes it. He says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. Now, this last year, we've all learned the value of antibodies. 
that if we're going to fight viruses that are coming our way, we need an immune system that can resist and attack and neutralize those. And if we have a faith that has never had doubts or doesn't have doubts and isn't honest about them, then we're like a person walking around in the world with no antibodies. And yet it's really important that we understand our distinction. There is a distinct difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt here in the life of Habakkuk is welcomed, while unbelief is not. And here's a couple different ways to see the difference between doubt and unbelief. The difference between doubt and unbelief is the difference between wrestling with God and refusing to wrestle with him. Wrestling with God means that you're actually still in a relationship But refusing to accept God, pushing God away, refusing to uh, embrace what God is doing or has done, or refusing to stay in a relationship with him, that's different. That's unbelief. Doubt reflects a relationship with God, while unbelief reflects rebellion against God. And throughout the scriptures, we see people, many of whom we hold up as heroes of the faith, who wrestle with doubts and questions and and struggles. This is who you say you are, God, but this is what I'm witnessing. This is what I read in your word, and this is what's playing out in real life. I'm struggling to make sense of this. That's different than unbelief. Unbelief is a, a rejection, a rebellion. That's the path of sin. And remember I told you Habakkuk's name is? His name is to embrace or to wrestle. What Habakkuk does is Habakkuk gives us a vision of wrestling with questions in the context of embracing God. And most of us tend to do one or the other. We either embrace God and we ignore all those questions, or we wrestle with God and it leads us away from a relationship with him. And what Habakkuk does is he brings both of those together. He gives us a picture that you don't have to choose one or the other. You can choose both. You don't have to be honest with God or abandon God. You can be honest with God while walking with him. And it's really important that when we get questions like that, we take them to God. And it's important that if other people bring up those questions with us, that we respond in such a way that we don't reject them. Whether you're a friend or a parent, At some point in your life, somebody is going to tell you honestly about the questions they have, the doubts they have, the struggles they're having. And if you shut them down, reject them, or make them feel like there is something wrong with them, that they need to jettison all those things to really be a person of faith, I can tell you one of two things is going to happen. Either that's the last honest conversation they'll ever have with you, Or two, they may take you as a spiritual authority and begin to think that they can't take those questions to God. And so if you're a parent and you have a child who's wrestling with questions or doubts about God, how special that they trust you enough to be honest with you. If you've got a friend who's wrestling with doubts or questions about God, how special that opportunity to walk with them as a trusted voice as they do exactly what Habakkuk does. See, we have a God who welcomes honesty, 
But number two, we also have a God here who responds to sincere questions and doubts. It isn't just that God welcomes our honesty. He actually responds to it. Now, we don't have time to go through every nook and cranny of Habakkuk, but let me give you a little bit of an outline of the book. Here in Habakkuk 1, 1 to 4, we see the first questions Habakkuk has about God, and then we see God's response. Habakkuk comes back, and he actually has more questions that he shares. And then God shares even more of a response. This is actually like a tennis match going back and forth, where where Habakkuk is raising questions, and then God is responding. This is a real relationship we see here. And Habakkuk is one in a long line of people in the Bible who are biblical wrestlers. Not like WWE with singlets and masks, but but wrestlers with God. Jacob famously wrestles with God, and then he's got to live for the rest of his life. David's wrestlings we call the Psalms. Jeremiah wrestles with the things God's calling him to. Famously, Job wrestles with God because he seems to lose everything for no reason. And then we have Habakkuk here too. So if you're somebody who says, I've got questions and I'm wrestling with God, you've got company all throughout this book. There's an invitation to enter into a real relationship and dialogue with God. I love how the the writer of Psalm 116 puts it. I love the Lord because he has heard my appeal for mercy. Because he's turned his ear to me, I will call out to him as long as I live. See, what we see in the book of Habakkuk is a real relationship with God includes honesty, transparency, and back and forth. And yet so many of us, when we we find ourselves in a situation where we're wrestling with doubts or questions, we're, we're struggling to have hope and make sense of the left turn that life threw our way, we end up adopting bad options. Like this bad option. We say, well, you know, I've got doubts, so doubt means I've lost the relationship. And that leads us down a path of despair. We end up despairing because we think that everything's falling apart because I've got some, some doubts. Others of us, we say, I, I can't express doubt without losing the relationship. And so we develop this dishonesty. I, I know from experience that sometimes church, where it's supposed to be the most honest place in our life, can become some of the most dishonest places in our life. Where people aren't sharing about the real questions and struggles they have because they don't feel like they can. They don't feel like the people around them would embrace them. They don't feel like God would hold on to them. And so they develop this kind of dual life where they're saying and doing one thing publicly, but internally they're somewhere else. And yet Habakkuk offers us a better option. His doubts, by the end of this book, will actually produce a deeper embrace of God. He will wrestle with God while embracing God, and the end of the book will be in a very different place than the beginning. He'll be like our friend Catherine at the beginning of this message, who said, this pain that I would have never asked for in the end actually led me into a deeper intimacy with God than I ever had before. And that's what's available to you. I would say that's what I've experienced in myself. There was a season in my, my 20s, I spoke about this a couple weeks ago, where, where I was wrestling with the experience I had in church where I saw people who were hypocrites, who said one thing and did another. 
who are held up as mature, be like them. Dude, I don't even want to have lunch with those people. I don't like them. Why would I want to model myself after them? They say one thing and do another. And yet what I found in wrestling through those doubts is I had to go through a valley of cynicism, frustration, and doubt to come to a place where I had a different kind of relationship with God that had space for questions like that. Because here's the thing, if you're in a valley right now, there's two things I can tell you. It's possible for you to reach the mountaintop of hope. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. You're probably going to end up in a valley again. You're probably going to go through another season in life that's going to disabuse you of a naive or idealistic view. You're going to go through another season of life that's hard or difficult. And our life with God is not one giant climb. It is this continual up and down mountain and valley path. And we need to go through those moments of a valley so that when we end up in the next valley, we remember what the previous valley was like and what God taught us there so that we can have hope for the future because we go, you know what, I've been here before and God walked with me and it was not easy, but the same God who was with me in that valley will be with me in this valley. And that's how Habakkuk's doubts don't drive him from a relationship with God. They actually drive him into a deeper embrace of God. The third lesson comes from the next section of Habakkuk, where he says, this is God speaking. This is God's first response to Habakkuk. Look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded. For I am doing something in your days, Habakkuk, that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. In chapter 2, the Lord answers Habakkuk a second time, and he says, Write down this vision, clearly inscribe it on tablets, so that one may easily read it. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It testifies about the end and will not lie. Though it delays, wait for it, since it will certainly come and not be late. The third thing we learn is this is a God who works in ways that shock and awe his people. From the days of Habakkuk all the way till now, we see God working in ways that surprise us and shock us and awe us that don't make sense. And here in Habakkuk, he says, you know those people, the Chaldeans? Yeah, that evil, impetuous nation that takes all the land and stuff that doesn't belong to them? Yeah, those are the people that I have chosen to use. They are now my instrument. And Habakkuk's like, what? You're going to take some people who are evil, who are opposed to you, and then you're going to use them as part of your good plan? What? And yet what God tells Habakkuk to do is to write down what he's telling him. Because though everything he's promising for the future isn't happening right now, one day it will happen and he needs the record of it so that he can sustain hope. And apparently Habakkuk wasn't the only one who needed this message. Because here we are today wrestling with some of the same questions about how God works and about how God moves, about the gap between our sense of who God was and how God worked and how life is actually going. I mean, even in Habakkuk, he's wrestling with the fact that our timing isn't God's timing, 
There in Habakkuk 2, he says, though the, the vision tarries, wait for it. And when God's timing isn't our timing, we begin to think that God has somehow missed out, forgotten, gotten off on something else, and it's never going to happen. But with God, delays are not denials. With God, something taking longer doesn't mean it's never going to happen. And so often we tell ourselves, oh, it's not happening on my timetable. It's never going to happen. And that's what God says to Habakkuk. Wait for it. It's coming, but not on your time. We see here that our process isn't God's process. Habakkuk had a process in mind of how God would work. And yet at the beginning of the book, what we see is that God's not operating according to Habakkuk's process. And he gets honest with God about that. We see here that our methods aren't God's methods. God uses people and uses things that we think are terrible, anathema. They're, they're horrible developments. And he takes those things and he uses those things as part of his grand and greater plan that in the moment we can't see or understand. Habakkuk's saying, you're going to use the wicked Babylonians? You're going to use coronavirus? You're going to use someone getting elected that I don't like and vote for? You're going to use me? You're going to use me losing my job? You're going to use that crisis in our marriage? You're going to use that, that terrible diagnosis? Yes. Because we serve a God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And who has a concept and a picture of the world that is so much larger than our tiny little view. And so often, and I mean this in love and I mean this as to myself as much to you, so often we in our arrogance think that we know more than God. What is our life? 80 years? 90 years? In the context of human history? the context of eternity and yet we start declaring finally and ultimately what is good and bad and right and wrong and what is good timing and bad timing and good methods and bad methods and good processes and bad processes and from our limited vantage point we start making eternal declarations and this is why God tells Habakkuk to write it down He's like, you're going to need these lessons you're learning in the future. You're going to need these prayers in the future. You're going to need this revelation I give you in the future. And aren't you glad that Habakkuk wrote it down? Because the fact that he did what God told him in Habakkuk 2.2 is the reason that we have it to use today. It's the reason we can go, you know what, I'm not alone. Oh, God does welcome that. Oh, God does allow that. Oh, God does respond to that. And I'm not saying the words you write down are going to last 2,600 years. But somebody may need what God teaches you in this season you are in right now. In the next section, Habakkuk says, speaking of his enemies, he says, Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. The fourth lesson is this is a God who declares the unrighteous righteous. See, I told you this section of scripture, the minor prophets, is often overlooked and understudied. But throughout history, there have been a few places that have popped up that had pivotal roles. 
couple weeks ago, we read that passage from Micah, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. Very well known. But here in Habakkuk 2.4, we have a phrase that has literally changed the trajectory of the world. It was this verse, the righteous will live by faith, Habakkuk 2.4, that's quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans that pricked the heart of a man named Martin Luther when he realized that he was trying to achieve a righteousness through his works and actions that could only be found by faith. Luther then turned that revelation into a list of 95 theses that he nailed to the Wittenberg church door on October 31st, 1517. And that's the reason that we're here today as part of that Protestant tradition. This idea, it changed the world. Paul read it in Romans where Paul, sorry, Luther read it in Romans where Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And what God was speaking to Habakkuk to remind him is that we in ourselves do not have righteousness. None of us are righteous in and of ourselves. And if you think you are, just bring me a list of your closest five friends and a telephone, and we'll solve that problem in five minutes. None of us are righteous. And what the gospel declares is that we don't become righteous by buckling down, knuckling down, and working harder. No, we become righteous by our faith in the righteous one. Habakkuk was looking forward to Christ coming as the Messiah. We look back on Christ coming and what he did, and we put our faith and trust in him. Followers of Jesus are not looking to a self-righteousness, but a righteousness that's outside of us. And it is that faith that enables us to endure hard times like the ones Habakkuk is living through that that you may be living through. You know, one of the images we have of faith in the scriptures is, is running. I've never been a runner. I don't see myself ever becoming a runner in the future. If I'm going to sweat at an exercise, I'm interested in other running. Now, but my wife, she's a runner. When we first met in our first six months of getting married, she ran two marathons. And after that, I guess marathons were not enough. And so she and a bunch of her friends found this, uh, this race called the Ragnar Relay. And the Ragnar Relay is, um, I just call it pure insanity. Um, basically, you find 11 friends, 12 of you get together. And over the period of about 24 or 36 hours, you run together 202 miles. You get in a van, you start going, and then you each take runs anywhere from four to ten miles. You do three legs. You sleep on the gym floor of a local high school. You go in and out of the van. It sounds like a terrible weekend to me, but people pay for this. I mean, we paid our money for her to go do the Ragnar Relay. And along the way, there are people who are runners in that relay who are not like the top runners. And they just make it through endurance. There are other runners who just, you know, they get done with that run and they could, you know, do it again. They just don't break a sweat. And that's an image, I think, of faith for us. That sometimes faith feels like we're totally conquering life. 
And sometimes faith feels like we're just surviving in life. But, but what Christ promised us is that our faith in him is more than enough for us to make it through whatever life throws our way. That in his righteousness, he gives us what we need to endure. The fifth lesson I told you comes from the, the psalm at the end of this book. And here's, here's why we think that Habakkuk was a priest. He writes this beautiful poem. He says, I heard and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones and I trembled where I stood. Now I must wait. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come upon the people invading us. That's the promise of those Chaldeans, those Babylonians. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the field produces no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord my God is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. It's that verse that inspired the uh, Christian devotional Heinz Feet on High Places. The fifth lesson we see here is that this is a God who is worthy of our hope. This is a God who is worthy of our hope. Habakkuk is really honest about what lies ahead. He doesn't cast out a vision of a yellow brick road where everything is easy and everything opens up and there are no obstacles. No, the reason that he's talking about hoping in the Lord is because there's danger ahead. If you need hope, it means you are either in the middle of or headed towards something that is dark and difficult. If things were going forward in the future that were easy, you might need some things, but you wouldn't need hope. And what we see here is that using the language of his day, not our language, his language, in an agrarian society, he describes the future. He says, though the fig tree has no buds, we're not going to be harvesting figs this year. Though the grapevine has no harvest, we're not going to have any wine this year. Though the olive tree is empty, we're not going to have olive oil this year. Though the fields lie empty, there's going to be no harvest this year. Though the flocks are, are thinning out, there's not going to be any sheep this year. And though the stalls are empty, we have no livestock anymore. What does he say? Yet, I will celebrate in the Lord. How do you do that? How do you face defeat, loss, and emptiness everywhere you look? And say, yet, I will celebrate in the Lord. I can tell you how you don't do it. You don't do it by living a what-if life. You see, a relentless fear, when it fills us, leads us to say, what if, what if, what if. That may be how you've lived the last year and a half. But what if this happens? And what if this happens? What if this happens? What if that happens? And what if that happens? And there have been times this year that I've said that, you know? Well, what if that place kicks us out, you know? What if we have to go back online again? What if more people leave? You know, I, I've asked those questions myself. 
when I found myself in a fearful place. But there's another option. We don't have to live with relentless fear. We can live with relentless hope. And relentless hope says even if. Even if the olive tree is empty, and even if the grapevine is empty, and even if the olive tree is empty, and even if the fields are empty, and even if the flocks are empty, and even if the stalls are empty, and even if my retirement goes down, and even if that place downsizes, and even if we have to move, and even if I have to wear a mask for longer, and even if we have to stay longer online, and even if I lose some more people, even if that, God has not changed. God has not moved. His character is not any different. He is still with me. And so many times when we find ourselves living the what ifs instead of the even ifs, we discover that we've been rooting our hope in the wrong place. See, is your hope rooted in your circumstances or is it rooted in God's character? And when we build a circumstantial hope, what we will find is ourselves overwhelmed again and again by the what ifs. But when we root our hope in the unchanging character of God, we can say, you know what? Even if that happens, I can still celebrate. Even if that happens, I can still rejoice. Even if that happens, I know that I am not alone. And the problem is, is that many of us are praying for a change in our circumstances when it seems like God may be wanting to work on our character. You get to the end of Habakkuk when you read it this week, and, and all those things that Habakkuk brought to God as questions are still there. There are evil people who are prospering. There are places where things seem to be happening that contradict the character of God. And then he discovers that God's going to use these evil people to judge his own people. And it seems that what God does in the book of Habakkuk from chapter 1 to chapter 3 isn't that he changes Habakkuk's circumstances. It seems that he begins to transform Habakkuk's character. So that when we get to the end of the book, he can say, The Lord my God is my strength. I started out in the valley, but he makes my feet like those of a deer, and he enables me to walk on mountain heights. That's not because Habakkuk was a stronger, more faithful, more resolved worshiper of God than you and I. It's that he had gone through a process of dialoguing, wrestling, and doubting before God. And on the other side of it, his hope had grown. And the experience of taking those questions and doubts to God had transformed him so that at the end, he was a different person than he was at the beginning. And that's the invitation that's available to all of us today. If you're following along in your notes, I've got a couple of next steps for you this morning. Here's the first one. I want to invite you to wrestle your doubts and questions out with God. Not to suppress them or deny them. Not to treat them as the, the end of your relationship with God, but to treat them as an invitation. I love how Bobby Conway puts it. He says, when you take your doubts to God, ask for three things. Ask for help, ask for reassurance, and ask for evidence. If you're going to take those questions to God, ask God to do those things. God, give me some help with this. God, reassure me in places where I'm uncertain and give me some real hard evidence that I can put myself in. 
If, if you're wrestling with doubts or questions today, or you know someone who is, we've put together a resource for you. On our website, we have a worship resources page. If you're watching online, you'll see a link to it on the left-hand side of your screen. And there's a, a button there that says Sermon Extras, the little arrows pointing to it. And we put together a resource list to either help you or somebody you know wrestle through your doubts and your questions. Number two, I want to invite you to listen carefully and humbly. When we get worked up sometimes with things that are frustrations for us, I don't know if you're like me, but I tend to just never stop talking. I just talk and talk and pour it out and pour it out and pour it out. And it's important to remember that prayer is not just talking to God. It's also pausing long enough to listen. And here's what Habakkuk says after sharing his second set of questions. He says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I should reply about my complaint. So, so when you take these questions and doubts and wrestle with them with God, make sure that you listen and watch like Habakkuk did for God to answer and not just fill the air. Number three, write down what you hear. I know not everybody's a journaler, and you don't have to be a journaler to be a follower of Jesus. At one point, I felt like that, and so I felt terrible that I just wasn't a journaler. But I will tell you that, that there is a value and a benefit to those who do develop the discipline. You have something to look back on. And when God speaks to you and reveals something to you, write it down, capture it. My mentor, Michael Hyatt, says the shortest pencil is longest than the longest memory. The shortest pencil is longer than the longest memory. When you write something down, it doesn't matter if you're having a good memory day or a bad memory day. You have it to go back to. Number four, give yourself to Jesus. When you're wrestling with doubts and questions and you're, you're searching for hope, it's really easy to give yourself to the questioning and the struggling and sometimes what happens is we give ourselves to those things instead of giving ourselves to God. My, my friend Kyle Strobel was in a conversation recently about a topic that's very popular in our culture today called deconstruction. And here's what Kyle said. He says, we never give ourselves to deconstruction. We're to give ourselves to Jesus who deconstructs. There's a difference. I'll tell you that if you give yourself to Jesus, he's going to begin to do some major renovations in your house. How many of you have ever done renovations in your house before? How many of you had it go according to plan? How many of you had them discover things that you didn't know needed renovated? It's, it's worse with Jesus. It lasts longer and it's more expensive. And when you give yourself to Jesus, he is going to deconstruct. He is going to take things apart. But with him, you have the promise that he's actually going to rebuild. And sometimes when we go down the path of doubts and questions and we give ourselves to deconstruction, what we do is we find ourselves tearing it all down and we never rebuild it again. And then number five, share your story of hope. Some of you here today said, Scott, this message wasn't for me today. I'm in a great season. That's great. We need your story of hope. We need how God has built hope in your life in the past and how you have hope in the present because some of us in this room, some of us in your small groups or in your friend groups or in your families are in seasons where you need hope. And so those of you who have a strong, robust hope, we need you to tell that story. We need you to share that for someone who is in the valley still. 
so they can borrow some of your hope as they walk forward today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you invite our honesty, that you want to have a real relationship with us. And we thank you for the book of Habakkuk that gives us freedom to to step into that relationship with you, even at times where we're nervous or scared to, to voice those things. We thank you for the picture that we see in this story of someone who begins in honesty with you and who ends in a place of hope. Some of us are in the middle of that journey. We've, we've been honest with you. We're struggling and wrestling with you and we're not sure how it's going to turn out. So I pray for those people today who are watching or who are in this room listening that, that they would look to you that they would give themselves to you, that even as they wrestle with you, that they would embrace you. And that they would see in the story of Habakkuk that even even in times of darkness and struggle and difficulty, that you are worthy of our hope. That you are strong enough to take the full weight of us leaning on you with everything we're struggling with. That you don't abandon us in those places but you meet us there. And we pray that you would transform us as we we surrender and bring those things to you. In your name we pray, amen.